You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This is the podcast that has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close Show that I co-anchor with Scarlett Fu and Caroline Hyde on Bloomberg Television called What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspectives on the week's top stories and, well, those that you may have just missed. It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week, NFL season kicked off amid the zombie news cycle the league just can't shake. Colin Kaepernick is back as the new face of Nike after his collusion case against the NFL was allowed to go forward just last week. Mark Leibovich, New York Times Magazine chief national correspondent and author who documented Washington's insiders in This Town, traded one swamp for another and spent the last four years documenting the business of peak football in his new book, Big Game, The NFL in Dangerous Times. Scarlett sat down with him and started by asking how he thought the NFL was reacting to Nike's big bet on Kaepernick. Well, he is increasingly persona very grata. Does that make sense? I don't speak Latin. But, I mean, he is he's everywhere. I mean, he is someone, he's a problem they just wish would go away. He, you know, knelt for the national anthem. He is suing the league for collusion. They thought that that case had no merit, was just going to go away. And then last week, um, an arbitrator ruled to the surprise of many people in the league, and I think many people who follow this, that this case is going to be heard. It's going to mm-hmm. continue. Uh, it's going to go into open, whatever the arbitration version of open court is. And a lot of people who t- generally are not great to be brought out in public, i.e. NFL owners, are going to have to testify, answer what could be some you know, uncomfortable and pretty privileged questions. They didn't want that. I still think they, they would desperately like to avoid that. But on top of this, you now have Nike announcing that they have this contract with Colin Kaepernick. You're going to have a backlash immediately against Nike. I'm sure the president will weigh in at some point if he hasn't already. And that is going to probably take up a lot of the oxygen going into the season when they just want to keep the focus on football. Absolutely. And within your book, you talk a little bit about support of Kaepernick's movement uh, within the league. You hinted, and correct me if I get this wrong, that Goodell and some owners are more sympathetic to players' grievances than a lot of people realize. I think they are. But the fact is, though, I mean, this is like the NFL is just a very it's diverse as far as like there's thousands of different player agendas. And there's 32 very, very different owners and 32 very, very different markets or I guess subtract the two in New York and L.A. So 30. And it's just there's a whole differing set of interests. And I think one of the reasons 
that big game I mean, it became just a book that was very familiar to me. Is I mean, I do politics for a living. I mean, I wrote this town a few years ago, and you realize it's all the same swamp. I mean, this town is a swamp. Washington is a swamp. Donald Trump ran against it. Football. It's all, everyone's sort of part of the same deal. You have the usual suspects, you have the owners, you have the journalists, you have the hangers on. Mm -hmm. And you realize it's a lot of the same stew of, of humanity, and I wanted to sort of dive in. Did you go into the project looking for swampy parallels, or did they kind no, of find you? No, absolutely not. It found me. I, I thought, I went into this project looking for an escape from politics. I was sick of it. I mean, you know, I just knew it was going to be another kind of dispiriting campaign. I've done this for 16 years. Love football. Wanted to sort of just jump into that for a while. Mm -hmm. And it took me not long at all to realize that you cannot escape politics by jumping into football. Even before Trump, just the league politics, the backbiting, the egos, the same thing you see in Washington, you see very much in the swamp of the NFL. Then Colin Kaepernick and Donald Trump come along and you know, the politics are unavoidable. And in fact, it's a smaller group, too, because they're, as you said, the, the membership is quite exclusive. Absolutely. Um, the NFL keeps finding itself in these culture wars, whether it's yeah. Kaepernick, whether it's the domestic abuse cover-up allegations. You write about how insecure and paranoid uh, the league is about its image, about its relevancy. Is the NFL set up to handle things in any other way? Because as you mentioned, there's no real, there's a lot of diversity in terms of right. different owners with different agendas. But um, in terms of background among the owners, they're all kind of Every one and the same. Every single one of them are like usually aging white men, except for one shot Connie owner, Jacksonville Jaguars is from Pakistan. That, but this is, first of all, as far as like a, a set of people who have their fingers on the pulse of the American culture. No, you don't want this. But beyond that, this group of NFL owners, I think, is one of the great untold stories of American business and culture. I mean, these are 32 people who own, who are, who are like some of the most powerful entertainment executives in our, in our country, right? They run probably the second or third biggest entertainment company in our country. In their individual markets, they're titans. They're mm -hmm. accustomed to a level of deference. And it is the most exclusive sort of boys club in America. They're all billionaires. Donald Trump desperately wanted in for four decades and he couldn't get in. So as a consolation prize, he finds himself in the White House. So he can't be in their club, but he gets to live in their heads now. But just getting into the culture of NFL owners was a fascinating project and sort of getting to know these people, getting closer to these people than I ever imagined, getting a level of access I didn't imagine was sort of a window into the business world that I didn't fully appreciate, you know, I'd be able to get. And the way you go about it is to ask this question, a rhetorical question, whether uh, we're at peak NFL. Right. Do you think anyone within the NFL, whether it's Roger Goodell or his bosses, the owners of the different teams, recognize the existential issues at hand? You know, I think they recognize it in, sort of intellectually, but I don't think any of them have the sense of urgency that you would want from sort of a sort of a younger, more sort of person who feared the future, someone who like was accountable to shareholders, someone who was accountable to sort of a board that could, you know, get rid of him or her in a few years. I mean, these NFL owners are like politicians in that they're used to a level of deference and power and they love the ego gratification. The one big difference is none of them have to run for re-election. So they are basically installed and you cannot get rid of some of these people. If you had to re-elect Daniel Snyder as the owner of the Washington Redskins, he would lose by probably about 50 points. So th this is, I mean, it's, it's a very, very installed 
called base of, of people. And, and yet, so you don't have the urgency or they're not predisposed to a sort of longer term urgency of the things that could really kill the league long term. So things could deteriorate slowly and then suddenly. What would be yes. the tipping point? Do you think it'll be the concussion issue? Or would it be politics? I think it'll happen slowly. I mean, I think concussion is obviously making it is driving a sort of a, a big wedge into just who plays football in mm-hmm. youth leagues. I think ratings are, you know, they're, they're sort of seeping down. I mean, cord cutting is a big technological issue. Politics is is a much bigger factor in, in football now than it was 10 years ago, both on the left and on the right. I mean, mm-hmm. Trump has made this a big sort of right, you know, uh, culture sort of cause celeb on the right. And so it is a combination of factors. Having said all that, I, I do think that the game is great. It's a great TV sport. TV is still king. Mm-hmm. And I think that it will survive because of the greatness of the game. But I think in spite of many of the people who run it. So of the different owners, who's the most forward looking? Who's the one most capable of understanding the business and pageantry of the business? Of, yeah. Sorry, if the NFL threatens to overtake the beauty of the game itself, as you put it. it. It's interesting. I mean, I think some of the most impressive people I met along the way here, like the number twos at some of the teams, like Jonathan Kraft in New England, you know, John, uh, Robert Kraft's son. Uh-huh. Uh, very impressive guy. Kevin Demoff of the L.A. Rams. Um, you know, Tony Khan, Shad Khan's um, son, Jacksonville. Um, Rich McKay of the Atlanta Falcons. I mean, these are all you know, much younger. They have a more holistic and, and really more activist sort of like more. I mean, there are people who you have a sense have either been to business school or have that sensibility. But look, largely, these are not people you would want to put on a corporate board if you were running an Apple or a FedEx or a Bank of America or a thing like that. It's just not who we're dealing with here. Why did why on earth did they let you have so much access? I mean, oh you 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 know unearthed all this uh, about them. It was yeah. kind of a warts and all look at the NFL. <laughs> the yeah. NFL is notoriously secretive. They have the shield and they kind of hide behind right. it. I was stunned. I, I really am, and, and you know you'd have to ask them. I, I mean, I was pleasantly surprised. I didn't think I'd get in, especially I'm not a sports writer. Um, maybe I mean, I because guess you weren't a sports writer. maybe because I'm a sports writer. I mean, for some reason, like I've literally profiled hundreds of politicians over the years, and I still get the question from people all over Washington: Why do they let you in? Um, I guess I'm just so charming. I'm irresistible. But no, I, I don't really have the answer to that. And I mean, I did have the advantage of football because this is sort of a one-off and now I'm going to go back to my day job. But uh, I'm certainly grateful that they let me in uh, to the degree that they did. And I think you know, the, book, the book sort of tells that story. We also discussed Silicon Valley executives returning to Capitol Hill this week. Facebook COO Sheryl Sandberg, Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey, and a third chair left empty for Google faced questions from the Senate Intelligence Committee before Dorsey faced questions about anti-conservative bias from the House Energy and Commerce Committee. David Kirkpatrick, CEO of Techonomy Media and author of The Facebook Effect, joined us and told us if he thought the questions from lawmakers have improved after multiple rounds of hearings and whether all this was actually breaking through to the company's user base. They were better versed this time, I would say. I think they got better questions and I think you know, incrementally, they gave better answers. I think, to me, one of the most significant things that came out of today's hearings was this sense that government and these companies need to work more closely together, and there was some willingness on both sides to have a more reasonable discussion about that, because that really hasn't been something that's been discussed publicly much at all up until now. Also, the fact that they were talking about how the industry has gotten together among themselves to try to think of collective strategies, that's healthy. So I see some incremental healthy moves, but the basic point I still would make is to believe that this problem of manipulation and misuse of these platforms is even close to addressed 
is fundamentally false. Let's listen to what Senator Warner, Mark Warner, the ranking Democrat on the committee, had to say when he spoke with uh, a Senate Intelligence Committee, when he spoke with our Kevin Cirilli earlier. Let's listen. Their unwillingness to sit down and try to work with not just Congress, but for that matter, as you said, answer questions that Americans have, I think at the end of the day, it's going to hurt their reputation, not just with the policymakers, but I think with a whole lot of Google users, what do they have to hide if they aren't willing to show up and answer questions? That was, of course, his Talking reference. Google. Yes, Google not showing up, offering to send, what, their legal yeah. counsel once again, but that not cutting it for the... for the. I think it is very imprudent of Google not to have shown up. It also was a gift to Facebook and Twitter because much of the coverage was focused on Google's absence rather than what Jack and Cheryl actually said, which probably was to their benefit. Did they say anything? No, I don't think they said too much, but I, I do think that to, is also a win. Right. That, that they didn't have to say anything, that the t- questions weren't tough enough to put them into in any embarrassing positions, I think is, is a win on their part. I think the smart money, the conventional wisdom is that politicians are going to talk tough and Trump is going to tweet from time to time and they're going to have these hearings, but that it's still such a long reach until we would either see a meaningful legislative response or a meaningful regulatory response, and therefore, ultimately, it's kind of toothless. Is that right, or could it be that maybe we're surprised and something comes down the pike faster than people expect? I think something could happen because I think the American public is getting concerned about these issues, and it is, interestingly, a bipartisan concern. Right. The concerns are slightly different on either side, but they are real in both right and left, and I think they're real on the part of almost all senators. But shares are down today, whether or not it's because we just see executives standing up on Capitol Hill or whether there is real negative sentiment behind whether we would see regulation coming sooner or later. What do you think is driving these share prices at the moment? Uncertainty. I mean, I think we, you know, these companies, especially Facebook, which has been such a profit machine, is entering into a fundamentally uncertain era. And the reason their stock dropped so much in one day was because of many of the steps they've been taking to address these problems where they said as a result in part of that their re- their revenue growth was going to slow and their profitability was going to decline and those are that's a one two punch that's pretty strong and that's a s- consequence of a lot of this stuff and it's going to continue because these problems are going to be expensive to resolve Leaving aside the political issues. Something that you brought up in the past, which is you don't think that a lot of the guys in Silicon Valley get how angry people are. Most Americans are about how their data is being handled. And Ali Donaldson, one of our uh, producers, found some interesting data points mm. from a Pew survey that found that only 9% of Facebook users have download, downloaded their personal data from Facebook. But among that group, 47%, so almost half, have deleted the Facebook app from their mobile phone. And 79% have elected to adjust their privacy settings after downloading the data. So people are starting to take action here. That is, I had not seen that data, and that is some pretty stunning statistics. If almost half of all the people who figure out how much Facebook really knows about them decide, therefore, to stop using Facebook entirely, Mm -hmm. that is a big piece of information. I didn't know it, and it doesn't shock me. Everyone I know who's downloaded their data from Facebook has said, oh my gosh, I had no clue. They knew, they had the phone numbers of all my friends, and they were selling those to people, etc., etc. So more than than the hearings, the fact of the matter is, at least to some extent, the privacy issues seem to be breaking through to usage, or at least at a small set, and that is partly what explains why there's been no bounce at all when it comes to Facebook. 
And there's like a real issue of how uh, people want to use it. Well, but think about it. It's you have so many issues hitting all at once. Right. Privacy is an entirely separate set of issues from political manipulation right. and abuse of the platform and false identities and all the consequences of that. These are some pretty serious government governance challenges of a variety of sorts that are all bur- you know, bubbling up together at the same time that Wall Street's worried about their profit growth. Mm. That's, that's a bunch of complicated problems. David, do you think any of the questions that have been asked today or any of the statements that have been made will go and change business practices quickly for the likes of Sheryl Sandberg or indeed Jack Dorsey? I do think this issue of cooperating with the government more is a big deal, and that would be a step in the right direction that I have not heard talked about publicly the way it was today, both from the senators and with some receptivity on the part of the companies. So that, to me, is a very positive step in the right direction, because these problems cannot be solved by the companies alone. How to solve them is generally still a mystery, but they're not going to be solved by them alone. Um, some of the other big tech stocks are mostly doing fine. Google or Alphabet's down a little bit, but it's, people don't seem too concerned by it. Amazon, obviously, un, uh, seemingly unstoppable in the eyes of the market. Is it When it comes to all these issues, and as you point out, there's a lot. There's privacy and there's election interference and all kinds of stuff. Is it really... They're different and they have different issues and some will be fine and some just don't aren't exposed. Or in the end, are all of these companies going to face issues of some sort merely because of how dominant they are? Well, I definitely agree with your last statement in the, in the macro terms yeah. that all these companies' role in the economy is so unprecedentedly large yeah. that we just haven't taken stock of it in general. But the way in which they're having an effect on our society is different in each case. Yeah. I think Amazon is generally not so far subject to a lot of concerns about privacy. I think that could easily arise in their case because they have huge amounts of data about them, about us. And generally, I don't think we're too worried about how they use it, but maybe we should be. Yeah. Political interference is not really an issue with Amazon. On the other hand, Amazon's advertising business is growing very rapidly. Right. The more they become an ad company, the more many of these other issues could begin to affect that. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Then we tackled the sell-off in emerging markets that is showing no sign of letting up with Jeff Dennis, head of global emerging market strategy at UBS. We started by asking him whether we were entering a new stage of global contagion concern. It would seem so. Uh, The way we're looking at it is still the dollar is the key driver here. And and although obviously the dollar is weaker today, which has helped, as you rightly say there, these currencies to stabilize a little bit and even bounce a bit, um, a lot of the damage that we've seen in the EM index today is that was actually in, in Asia overnight. So the logic would be actually, without being too specific here, that um, you will get, with the dollar being a bit weaker tonight, you might see a bit of a bounce in Asia. Now, um, we, we, we simply think the dollar drives the flows. Um, within EM, 
there is no doubt that you've seen some um, deterioration in fundamentals in some of the key markets. You mentioned Brazil, South Africa, Turkey recently. But there's not still, in our opinion, a major emerging market crisis here. What this is is something driven by flows. And the danger is, of course, that you do start to see some contagion. Um, and you're seeing that a little bit in certain parts of the asset class. But um, again, I think the dollar is the key. And if the dollar goes down, which is what the house view is here at UBS, that will ultimately help EM to establish some sort of a base. So do you see examples in which good quality assets or currencies of healthy countries are being sold off simply because there are people out there that are saying, I don't want exposure to EM anymore? and thus creating dislocations that really aren't justified by the uh, fundamentals? I, I think that's absolutely right, Joe. I think you're seeing that, um, you know, in, an, in a number of countries. As I say, I think you've seen deterioration of fundamentals in Brazil, South Africa, Turkey right. this year. But I think um, the sell-off in the ruble is overdone. I think the mm. sell-off in some of the Asian currencies is overdone. Okay, Indonesia's got a, a current account deficit, but it's not that serious. And certainly in India... Oil prices are up, but I don't think you know, the, the, the fundamentals warrant the sell-off you've had in the Indian rupee as well. And also, don't forget, and, and this was a big focus of the market in late May and into June, the stronger dollar at that time put the Chinese currency mm. under pressure. And we don't really believe there is a need for fundamental weakness of the Chinese currency, again, very much reflecting um, the strength of the dollar. The Chinese economy is slowing down. We all know that. They're doing some policy changes to try to support the Chinese economy. So there's no earthly reason, in our view, apart from a strong dollar, why the Chinese currency should come under significant pressure at this stage. Yes, yeah, certainly when we're expecting overall growth to continue above 6% for the Chinese economy when you're seeing the PMI still showing expansion as they did yesterday, Jeffrey. But what about the trade headwinds for China? Could that in some way derail growth there? And indeed, if we did see a crisis in China, does that become de facto an EM crisis? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. We've always had the view that the one country, major country that could derail the whole of the asset class would be China. Now, Turkey made a pretty good attempt at derailing the asset class in, in early June, to be fair. But China is without a doubt a, the key. And, and there's absolutely no question that um, the risk of an escalating trade war, and we certainly do not believe you've seen the end of the tariff increases at this stage. We've already reduced our, our GDP number in China by 20, 30 basis points from what it would have been because of trade. And that absolutely is a major risk. So an escalating trade war from here, especially if it led to a major slowdown, not just in China, but in the global economy itself, would certainly um, would certainly harm emerging markets overall. Not really our base case. We've got China growing above 6% both this year and next year. And we've got a lot of policy changes coming in, coming through to support the economy. But yeah, that, that's obviously a major risk. And in a way, what we're getting here over a series of months is the wild card being the trade side. But I want to re repeat the point I said earlier. Our house view here is the dollar's going lower over the rest of the year to 120 against the euro and beyond that next year. If that is anywhere near right, emerging markets will ultimately make a bit of a comeback here because mm. this is all being driven by flows. And that's, um, mm. that's what's causing all these problems at this stage. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying and how the dollar holds the key here. But whether or not uh, there's a contagion, whether or not the dollar recovers, certainly there's specific pairs or specific emerging market currencies that you're keeping an eye on and are key yeah. to whether the sell-off continues or things stabilize. What would it be? Is it the Chinese yuan or is it stabilization in the Turkish lira or the Argentinian peso that could change things? 
I, I think I think that would certainly help. But uh, but I, I again, I'm sorry to make the same point, but those currencies probably won't stabilize for long yeah. until such time as you either get much more dramatic policy action than you've had so far. Or unless, of course, the dollar starts to fall itself. Now, the way I always looked at this is what the strong dollar does, it allows investors to pick away at the bad stories or the fundamentally less strong stories. And some of those have deteriorated this year. Again, sorry to belabor the point, Turkey, South Africa, Brazil are good examples. If you then get broad-based contagion to the whole of the assets, which I'm not sure you're getting yet, that sweeps the whole asset class into the into the melee here, into the crisis. I don't think we're, we're there yet. What we're watching is a real sign of recovery, as you had actually for several days in late, in late August, is to see the dollar moving lower because we believe at UBS it's fundamentally overvalued. Jeffrey, if uh, there's an opportunity here in the emerging markets, what is the best way to play it? Because obviously, if you try to trade it, you risk catching a falling knife. There can always be further dislocations. Should people just subtly shift their portfolios more, tilt them towards EM? Should they be selective for some of the strong ones that have got hit? How do you safely take advantage of this opportunity in your view? It's a great question because it's incredibly difficult to pick the bottom in this sort of environment. It's just so hard because we just don't know from one day to another where the dollar's going to go. So I think until you saw a definitive turn in the asset class, although it would be nice to say you load up on Turkey and, Ru- and Russia and Argentina and Brazil, etc. In truth, I think what people should be doing is, is beginning to you know, move back into the markets, but in, a, in, a, in perhaps in a, in, a, in a more defensive way or a very cautious way. Um, and, you know, sectors that we like, that we think are worth looking at across EM, even in this turbulent environment, are things like financials, which are becoming very much more important in, in, in the emerging market world. And, and growth in some of these economies is decent enough that you're seeing some credit cycles developing. And, and also, you know, with oil prices being where they are, they have, those have not really come through to the earnings story yet. We like energy also. So I think there are things people should do. But to simply say, we know where the dollar's going today, tomorrow, the next day, and you should load up on the risky assets. That's a very hard thing right. to do, I think. We need to see that turn before people will take on a lot more risk in some of the, in some of the weaker fundamental stories in the asset class. And that's it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like this podcast, make sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. And tune in every weekday to our daily market close show from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.